HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Nourish and Flourish is a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Nourish and Flourish, handcrafted, ad-free, print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Subscribe at nourishandflourish.site. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well, because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty, and the jazz is musicians, it's like, it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be speaking with one of my very favorite guests, Leah Douglas. Uh, Leah is an associate editor and staff writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Prior to joining them, she worked for three years as a reporter and policy analyst with the Open Markets Institute, where she researched economic consolidation and monopolization in the food and agriculture industry. She founded and wrote Food and Power, a first-of-its-kind resource on food sector consolidation. I need to read that, Leah. Um, Her writing on food, agriculture, and land policy has appeared in The Nation, The Washington Monthly, The Journal of Food Law and Policy, CNN, Fortune, Time, Slate, Daily Yonder, Civil Eats, and more. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much uh, for joining me again today. Um, just so people know, we are Leah has been a regular contributor uh, to Fern for quite a while and also a regular guest on the show. I urge people, if this is your first time tuning in with Leah, uh, go back and look for her name in my archive. Um, she's a wonderful reporter. And we've talked a lot about um, things like manure management and um, wasn't it you that I interviewed when the Murphy Brown suit uh, was successfully uh, prosecuted by the communities in North Carolina? You yes, covered that, that didn't you? Like one of our conversations. Yep. Yes, that was just one of our many conversations. So anyway, we're going to be talking a little bit today uh, about a recent story of Leah's. Uh, it was published on November 19th, and it's called A Battle Brews in Rural Wisconsin Over Factory Farms. And I've covered this topic a lot because I'm always so curious to see how various different states 
are managing uh, to deal with the expansion of industrial scale uh, livestock agriculture into our sort of uh, farm belts, as it were, Wisconsin, Iowa, North Carolina, and so on. Um, so first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about this story? Because it was quite, a, it had many interesting aspects. Sure. So this story starts out with a, a community, a small community on the border of Wisconsin and, and Minnesota uh, called Trade Lake. Trade Lake is a town of just a few hundred people. And uh, earlier this year, the residents of Trade Lake learned that there was a massive hog confinement operation being proposed in their community. Uh, would would at its peak hold about 26,000 head of animals and produce almost 7 million gallons of manure each year. And there's this is a farming community. There's a lot of farms in the area, but nothing of this scale. So residents uh, became quite con concerned about the potential environmental impact and so on of such an operation and uh, had several meetings over the course of the spring and summer uh, to discuss and debate um, this operation. And so the story takes the sort of situation in Trade Lake and zooms it out um, as well to talk about Wisconsin uh, broadly, what the state politics around factory farms are at the moment. And there was some contention this year around elected or appointed officials um, who manage agriculture, which, which we'll talk about a little bit later um, within yeah. the state of Wisconsin. So I tried to contextualize this one small communities debate over one hog CAFO um, to make sense of how Midwestern communities are handling an influx of, of new confinement operations and what happens when those operations come to town. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's remind people that Wisconsin is known as the dairy state. Um, so they have, they are not strangers to concentrated uh, animal feeding operations in the sense that um, they may not be feeding them for meat, uh, but they are feeding them to produce milk, and some of those dairy farms are upwards of ten thousand head of dairy as well. So the, the the manure issue is not a new one to Wisconsin, I would think. Right, Wisconsin is is absolutely a farming state, and um, you know when I was reporting this story, residents that I spoke to were really wanted to let me know that there was one other CAFO in the county um, that I was reporting on, a dairy CAFO with about a thousand head of animals, but that the owners of that operation were very involved in the community and had grown the, the operation organically. So uh, residents are really trying to draw a comparison to say it's not that we oppose all farming or even this type of farming, but it's really a matter of scale and how invested the owners are in the community that they're farming in. That's right. And in this case, this was an outside uh, entity I mean, an LLC, if I'm not, if I recall correctly, a limited liability corporation. And then there was a lot of sort of backing and forthing with the agent, uh, one Jeffrey Sauer, who um, was uh, advocating for the placement of the CAFO in Trade Lake. Uh, and yet he couldn't really identify exactly who his owners were. And I know I, we didn't discuss this before, Leah, but let's talk for a little bit about uh, how many of these operations tend to be uh, just that, kind of faceless corporations? There's no real connection to the community. Um, what what are the implications of that kind of uh, owner in an operation like this? Why do people feel worried about that? Sure. What I heard from, you know, in this particular instance in Wisconsin from residents was that they 
Um, you know, their position was if someone lives in the community, they're from the community, maybe their family is from the community, they're more likely to have an investment in the outcome from their operation and more likely to be a responsible steward of the land and the water and the air that they're using as a, as a resource to, to raise, you know, several thousand animals. Um, so I think the presumption, I've heard this in many other communities as well, is that when there it is an LLC, it's sort of a faceless um, entity um, and or an out-of-town uh, farmer who's saying that they want to start one of these massive operations in the community, there's often some pushback from residents around, you know, how will we know who to talk to if there's a complaint or how do we, you know, deal with this as neighbors if, you know, you don't live here or um, have never visited the community. So that's definitely something that came up in this in this community and comes up often, I think, in, in communities where this is the structure. Uh-huh. And um, just to dwell on this subject for one more second, and again, I apologize, it's just sort of occurring to me now, the, you know, the the number of uh, sort of corporations like this um, is is growing uh, and, and sort of normal, regular guy farming is kind of going away. And so corporate structures are owning these farms. Like, for example, I'm thinking of even hedge funds will own a farm or uh, and uh, venture capitalist uh, venture capital firms will own a farm or an operation, <clears throat> and it it does seem to have um, an impact on town politics when you have these outside influences. Would you agree with that? Like it does. Like they pay money. They will buy an election, for example. Would you think? Do you think that's something that happens pretty regularly? Well, I do think that one of the reasons I like writing about this type of story is that I think it really provides an important lens into how modern farming is happening, where, you know, it's not um, it's not the maybe pastoral image that folks might have about, you know, a farmer as being someone who, even if they are new to farming, you know, just gets a loan and like starts up their operation and has a few animals and grows it from there, that that's not really the model that's used in, in confinement animal agriculture anyway. You need so much money um, to get these operations started. And there's often these sort of multiple tiers of investors or folks who are mm-hmm. involved in the operation. And again, that isn't to say, as the residents in this community pointed out, that there can't be a CAFO that is responsible resident or that is connected to the community. But um, when you have that distancing and that amount of money um, coming into the community, then it often creates this, this tension. Yeah. I mean, this was unusual to me in a sense because hog farming, generally speaking, is a contract farming operation. So you would contract with a local pig farmer. Like that's normally, I think, how it works uh, as it does in poultry. And so this this struck me. I was really surprised by this because it is an LLC uh, that seemed to have very um, sort of murky roots. Um, It wasn't clear who was actually going to be building and maintaining these hog houses um, I don't want to go on and on about this, but it, it was interesting to me. And it also reminded me of a model that we haven't seen yet in this country. But uh, in Europe, it's actually grocery stores, big grocery uh, chains that are starting to move into communities and build CAFOs, like literally vertically integrating in that way, so that they are the outlet, the final outlet for the product, as well as the genesis of the product. And I'm wondering if that's something that you might start seeing as well as you uh, pursue your stories. Have you seen anything like that in the United States? 
Well, the, the most prominent example of grocery chains becoming involved in contract um, animal agriculture is with the new Costco plant um, in Nebraska, which ah, has received right. a fair amount of coverage that I've covered and many other reporters have covered as well. I think because it does represent um, sort of a first foray of a retailer into owning their own supply chain for and you know for their meat products, that Walmart has done this around. Um, some of their dairy products, they opened their own dairy processing facility um, a couple of years ago. So that was another instance. And Costco is the first to attempt that with meat, with animal farms. And there's certainly been significant impacts on the community in Nebraska from that operation. Um, so I yeah, think it's it is huge. That, yes. So I think that is something that um, at least Costco is piloting and I think is being watched very closely. Yeah, interesting. Well, they're, uh, just so you know, they're taking a page out of Carrefour in France. Uh, and a mm. couple of the big Spanish grocery uh, chains are doing that as well. Um, let's go back to this story, though, because it really was fascinating. The best part about it was reading the deposition, which I'm sure you read with great interest as well. Um, I'm not going to recommend that to listeners unless you really are glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> but but it did have some really rich moments, didn't it? Like, I mean, at one point, so the story in this case is that uh, the seller of the property, who happens to be the town county board supervisor guy for over the 30 years, and his son, uh, Eric, would benefit from owning, in other words, they were willing to sell a p- parcel of their farmland to a 35-acre piece to this uh, murky corporation uh, represented by Mr. Sauer. And then they would reap the benefit uh, of that, not only by making money off of the sale of the land, but also... Uh, and this was something I wanted to bring up with you, uh, not exactly in a dollar and cents value, but in, a, in the sense that we don't often think about the added value of the manure, which is often used as fertilizer. And these guys were going to get free manure for life, basically. That was kind of their their excitement over this deal. Um, how much do you think that that, that particular aspect uh, sways farmers? Um when it comes to having, uh, you know, making cutting deals like this, do you think that's something that is often uh, negotiated or thought about? I mean, let's figure. Uh, if assuming you have a couple thousand acres of land that you're putting fertilizer onto, it seems to me that free manure would represent a significant cost savings. What What's your sort of ballpark? Do you think on that? Yeah, so Just for, ballpark. for context Obviously on, that, not. on that deposition, so so essentially what happened in this case, and this was a really interesting aspect of the story, was that um, the town board chair of Trade Lake, as you said, his family had had entered into a conversation with the person, the middleman, Mr. Sauer, who um, was, was negotiating the hog farm on behalf of the LLC, and uh, that they had offered to sell a parcel of their land where the hog farm would be located. And members of the community became very angered about this because they said that because in his capacity as town chair, the, the elder Mellon is his last name in this family, has sway over whether or not um, this case was approved. And so for him to benefit right. financially or his family to benefit financially represented a conflict of interest. And they brought a lawsuit to have him removed from his position, which he's held for 30 years. And, and that and the proceedings of that lawsuit was where this deposition was taken of Mr. Yes. Sauer um, discussing all of the, the business dealings and was very revealing. It was kind of the, the most information from his perspective that was available about how this was this um, whole negotiation was going down. So, um, so yeah, just to, to speak to the manure, so one of the other added financial benefits for the family of the town chair would be 
um, to receive a deal or a free um, manure from the hog operation. And, you know, when you think back to a farming system that would have looked more holistic, certainly farms act like this now, but it was once much more common where you would have crops and animals on the same farm and the manure from the animals is what fertilizes the crops. And that's sort of a typical farm system. And post-industrialization right. of agriculture, those two operations have in many cases been separated. So you have corn, you know, corn and soy or commodity crop growers, and they're often not raising animals to the scale to meet their fertilizer needs. So they're buying either artificial or, or and have a deal with another farmer for the fertilizer and nutrients that they need for their crops. So that was another element in this in this deal where community members said, you know, this manure represents a significant cost savings um, and that cost savings shouldn't be given to the town chair who can basically decide or have a major role in deciding whether or not this CAFO is approved. Right, exactly. I don't know. I just thought that was a really interesting aspect. I'd never really thought about the dollar value of this, but I can imagine that it would amount to, you know, significant thousands of dollars per year. If you think about what it costs to uh, buy, uh, you know, conventional fertilizer, phosphate, phosphorus, and nitrates, uh, that's, that's got to be quite a lot of money we're talking about on a year, year over year basis. You know, I can see how that would be something that would really sway a farmer when it comes to thinking about whether or not they wanted to cite a CAFO on a small piece of property. Anyway, let's move on because we have so much more to talk about. Uh, so in this case, <clears throat> the real drama in this lawsuit was that Brad Pfaff, who was appointed by Wisconsin's Democratic governor, Tony Evers, in January to lead the state's Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection, was actually fired for trying to issue a few regulations on factory farms, such as setbacks from property lines, meaning that they couldn't have say, uh, the, the, the hog houses right up at the edge of the property line where it would be sort of contiguous with someone else's property. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened there with Brad and what the principal objections to his proposals were? Because that seems like a pretty benign uh, suggestion to me, like a basic good sure. neighbor policy kind of suggestion, if you know what I mean. Sure, of course. So uh, so Brad Pfaff, as you said, was appointed to this position earlier this year. And because of state politics in Wisconsin and how uh, the GOP-controlled Senate is navigating um, Democratic governorship, they have, that party has stalled um, confirmation of several of the governor's appointees. So Pfaff has been serving as head of the Agriculture Department in sort of an acting capacity and what essentially happened um, earlier this month was that the the uh, Senate refused to con- have him confirmed, so functionally fired him. Is sort of the the more colloquial uh. way to put it. And and so there was sort of there's a lot going on um, as to why that that particular action was taken. Um, one thing that was a major factor in in the reason that. Um, that the GOP was concerned with, was, was angered with Pfaff, was that he was promoting um, some rulemaking that would um, implement some new regulations on large livestock farms. And the most notable of those changes would have been to increase the amount of distance required between structures on a farm, buildings, manure lagoons, and so on, and the property line, which is called a setback. And setbacks are a very common regulatory tool to, to give basically a buffer to farm neighbors and to try to address some concerns that neighbors might have with air quality and smells, things like that, um, coming off of large CAFOs. So yeah. the, 
so FAP supported this this type of rulemaking, and um, that was um, not many Republicans in the Senate called them quote burdensome, and the dairy industry really opposed this new rulemaking. Not an uncommon position for industry groups within the states and at a national level to take. Mm-hmm. Basically, any new regulatory move is, is typically rejected by those entities on the grounds of being burdensome or unnecessary. Um, so that was definitely one of the factors in the air when this vote happened to sort of kick this staff out of his position. Amazing. <clears throat> you would think that there would be more than a few people who would support something really as simple as just setbacks because, I mean, I can see... <laughs> I can see how you'd want to build fence row to fence row, um, but, you know, like good neighbors, you sort of have to pay attention to the smells that come off of a capo. And then, of course, there's always the worry about the lagoon breaching, right, or the lagoons breaching yes. and having an impact on on the local water system. And as I understood uh, from reading the your article and several others, uh, there is only one uh, source of water in this particular town, which if it became polluted... Uh, would have a very serious impact on the quality of life there. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that, on the water issue? Sure. So back to Trade Lake, you know, zooming back in on this one community, water was definitely at the core of the community concerns around this particular operation. And again, you know, the folks that I talked to really wanted to make it clear that they were not uh, anti-farming. That's often a, a characterization of community members yes. who push back on, on new types of farming operations. Many of them are farmers, as is often the case. You know, in these rural communities, folks grew up on farms. They are farming. Um, but there were a few particular aspects of the, the location of this capo that worried the community. One was that um, it would be located right near a tributary of a larger river. Um, another was that there's uh, a um, aquifer that the town draws the majority of its water from that would be sort of right near, right underneath this proposed site. And so those were the particular issues that um, community members were were referencing to say, you know, it's we need to look specifically at the impact on this water source um, before we can move forward with this operation. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and, the, you know, just to and, to and to pull back from the trade lake, this is a problem that is endemic to farming communities uh, that uh, that engage in large scale uh, at livestock agriculture. This is not this is not unique to uh, Trade Lake by any means. And we've seen uh, by looking at the case of, say, North Carolina, how often those lagoons breach and the impacts on uh, the local water qualities there, which I would think would raise, uh, you know, something of a cautionary flag uh, to those who want to build new ones. But apparently not. Um, so let's. <laughs> what happened when after Brad was dismissed? Essentially, what? How did the community respond to that? Well, it was interesting. I, I had an interesting conversation with uh, a, a the government relations director of the Wisconsin Farmers Union, which had supported this rulemaking on increasing the setbacks. Um, felt strongly, feels you know, continually acts around regulating factory farms and uh, the the position that from that organization was to say that um, that agriculture here in the state of Wisconsin has sort of become a, quote, proxy war between um, different political interests in the state, that there were a lot of um, sort of, you know, it was sort of becoming weaponized almost as a, as a way to, for the GOP to, to, to get its way. It was sort of the position of this 
of this person. And um, we had, you know, I included this in the story, the perspective of, you know, the community members who live in, in Trade Lake and in many other places and in Wisconsin are, they're really coming at this from a place of wanting to have a neighborly, good faith conversation about how to, how to even, um, even if they did approve this type of operation, just how to keep it as safe as possible for the community. And right. I think that that, um, the ouster of this FAF um, from the agriculture position um, indicated the type of politicking that was pretty far removed from the culture and values that the community, at least the folks in Trade Lake that I spoke to, were trying to promote, which is, you know, we're, we're trying to have an honest, you know, upfront conversation. And, and yes, we might have different opinions, but at the end of the day, um, they maybe saw it as a little bit of dirty dealing. So um, sort of remains to be seen what the continued sort of fallout of that will be or who a new appointee will be in that position. Um, but it didn't sit well, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, really. Well, I mean, I digress one more time, uh, and you'll forgive me, uh, and then we're going to take a short break. But um, I'm just going to point out the similarities in this scenario uh, with uh, what was happening in Iowa I'm sure you followed uh, the story with the Des Moines Waterworks and the wonderful guy, uh, Bill Stowe, who sadly passed away last year. But um, if you recall, he ended up bringing a suit uh, against the upriver farming communities to demand that they do a better job of managing their uh, nutrient overflow, which was polluting uh, the water source for Des Moines. And um, it ended up being a, a very similar scenario in which uh, essentially the GOP, including the GOP governor at that time, Terry uh, Bradshaw, I think that's his name. Is that his name? Bradshaw? Brad something? Anyway, uh, brain dead is how I heard him referred to by locals <laughs> who ended up becoming our ambassador to China. But in any case, it became a very similar thing where what was meant to be sort of like, you know, let's get together and figure out how to solve this problem became a lawsuit, uh, you know, that went all the way to uh, federal court and then was tossed out uh, for various reasons. But anyway, I digress. We will take a short break um, whilst uh, we hear a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Leah Douglas uh, talking about managing CAFO uh, encroachment into your town. Stay tuned. Nourish and Flourish is a handcrafted ad-free integration of print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Explore emerging trends in nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and travel. Nourish and Flourish. Thought-provoking content and innovative links to videos allow you to view the future of food and healthy living. Join us on a journey of discovery from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about CAFOs in Wisconsin. My guest is Leah Douglas from The Fern, uh, the Food and Environment Recording, uh, Reporting Network. Um, Leah, let's talk a little bit about the deposition uh, that the agent, Jeffrey Sauer, uh, who was looking to effect this land sale, which really had some very comical elements to it, I have to say. Um, but he described the community pushback uh, by Mr. Pfaff, the the ousted, uh, uh, you know, commissioner, what have you, 
uh, and the and the other uh, residents of the town who were worried about the impacts on water quality. He described them in the deposition as a bunch of pricks who were, <laughs> who were selfish and only concerned with themselves. And I <laughs> I just couldn't get over his <laughs> aggrieved tone. Of course, he himself stood to make money if the sale went through. Obviously, that was revealed at one point. But as somebody who covers uh, industrial agriculture all over the country, you know what this this whole episode demonstrated something to me uh, that we were just talking about before the break, which was the sort of weaponizing of uh, local politics, the kind of us against them uh, attitude that characterizes so much of our daily discourse in this country. What, what, have you seen that kind of? I mean, like for non-farming folks, this guy sounds out of his mind, right? And for farming people, I guess it seems like he makes sense. What 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 do you see as you go around the country reporting on uh, issues like this? Well, this is an interesting point of discussion because I certainly was taken aback by some of the strong language used in this deposition. Um, had to keep sort of, I was sort of revisiting my shock that he knew he was under oath and continued to uh, sort of move forward. <laughs> I in know. Brief fashion, as you said. Um, and he was reminded uh, often that he was on, on the record, as we would say in the business. But um, yes. so, so I think this is a good, good example, though, of sort of the tenor that this type of debate can take on. And, and again, why I think it's so compelling to cover these issues at the hyper local level, because, you know, I think that this community in Trade Lake is a very typical example of how the, the crux of an issue around one CAFO can become a flashpoint to talk to, to have a debate or um, to sort of, to, you know, play out a um, all the tensions that could ever arise around factory farming. You know, one conversation comes yeah. to represent um, the whole in a way that is um, that can have really detrimental effects on a community. And, you know, I think in my experience, um, you know, someone like a sour who, who represents the sort of more conventional um, livestock animal agriculture approach and wants to move forward with this type of operation with 26,000 head of animals, they often see um, these types of operations as an economic booster to the community. And sometimes they'll promote that it will bring jobs um, or just add an economic stimulus. And because so many small rural communities are experiencing, you know, an economic depression, then that's supposed to be seen as, you know, new possibility for this community. And yeah. anyone who opposes that type of framing is then characterized as anti-farming, quote unquote. And um, yeah. as we discussed earlier, you know, many times the concerns about new industrial operations come from farmers because they are themselves perhaps the most invested in clean water, clean air. Um, I mean, everyone is invested in clean water, but, you know, they need all those resources for their own operation to become successful and to stay sustainable. So it often becomes this sort of false, um, these false lines in the sand where it's actually farmers on both sides and the farmers who are concerned about the environment are characterized as, um, you know, not interested in the economic well-being of the community. And and so that is this, I think, this tone is not dissimilar to perhaps more vulgar than I've seen in other cases, but the attitude is not dissimilar where the idea that by being concerned or having hesitancy about a CAFO, you would be selfish and not and only concerned with yourself, not thinking about the whole is, is pretty common, I think, from what I've seen and how these um, how these disputes play out across the country. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because, I mean, in a way, 
I mean, I could see that, okay, increased grain sales uh, might be an economic boost to an area, uh, but otherwise, uh, the number of personnel required to run a CAFO is minimal. Um, you're not bringing in uh, hundreds of jobs. You're bringing in maybe 20 uh, when you build a CAFO or 30 at the most, right? I mean, it isn't the economic shot in the arm that they like to paint it as um, unless a processing yeah. plant goes in next door or, you know, I mean, some other sort of uh, corporate entity uh, picks up the the the, uh, the 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 initial product and runs with it in your hometown. So that that's the thing yeah. that I always find very, very perplexing about these uh, conflicts, uh, that this kind of short sightedness. Um, and then it was also brought out uh, in the deposition that this man, Jeffrey Sauer, has uh, didn't even graduate high school, which is perfectly fine. Uh, certainly had no engineering uh, degree, had no geological training vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, where the aquifer was and how the lagoon should be sited and so forth. And so it was that the lawyer was able to bring out the fact that this guy, his only vested interest essentially was making money for himself and uh, for the guys who wanted to buy the the land for the CAFO. Uh, and that was, um, that was also kind of troubling to see as well, that you have, um, you have someone who's really clearly not qualified to make assessments about uh, impact, environmental impacts, uh, to say the very least. Um, anyway, to go on from there, um, one of the things, I mean, aside from animal welfare issues, the, the real problem with CAFOs is managing the manure. And so, as I mentioned to you, um, Dan Charles, uh, who writes, you know, often reports on food for National Public Radio, uh, recently had a piece in which he was essentially uh, patting Smithfield on the back because they had installed a couple of biodigesters. Okay, we're going to talk about sort of the grand scheme of things here. Um, so he had uh, Smithfield had gone to the expense of installing several biodigesters on lagoons in North Carolina. Um, and biodigesters, <clears throat> for uh, listeners who aren't familiar, essentially is a giant rubber tarpaulin uh, which is placed over the lagoon uh, and then uh, all of the gases and the bacteria trapped in there end up uh, eating up all the bacteria and the water is essentially cleaned <clears throat> and the uh, sludge is pumped out. Um, it's essentially harmless um, or it can be used for fertilizer. But um, all of the sort of noxious elements, uh, especially the VOCs, um, uh, have been uh, rendered harmless. So they're not cheap to install, that's for sure, but they're not that expensive when you're making that much money. And the thing that blew my mind about this particular story uh, by Mr. Charles was that he uh, he suggested that Smithfield should be uh, praised, which I guess, to be fair, they should be. Um, but uh, but he also said that, that any other technology that could be proposed uh, to mitigate the influence or the, uh, the noxious qualities of, of hog lagoons uh, was too expensive. And yet he didn't go on to say what those uh, technologies might be. I wondered if you had any in insight into those. And also, have you heard of any other companies going this far as to put uh, biodigester aprons over hog lagoons? Sure. So biodigesters are definitely one of the more controversial um, topics that I've heard communities talk about in relation to how to mitigate uh, the impact from animal agriculture. And the main pushback that I hear from both residents of communities where there are CAFOs and also from experts in the field, science, scientists, researchers, and so on, is that essentially the, the system uh, does nothing to address 
the biodigester solution does nothing to address the hog production or animal production system that it is participating in. That is to say, it's a cap, like a, just what you described, like a physical cap on top of a lagoon um, that would interrupt the passage of methane into the atmosphere and uh, reuse that methane for natural gas and, and other purposes. Um, and of course, you know, Smithfield or the other companies that own that manure that own that um, operation will be making some part of the money off of that um, sure. recycling of the methane. So, you know, I think this type of solution um, is is seen as some, something of a Band-Aid by communities that are impacted by, as you said, manure, lagoon spills, um, seepage into the water system, air pollution that comes from these types of CAFOs and so on. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think Smithfield has been the, the company that I've heard um, the most discussed about uh, in relation to biodigesters, perhaps moving with it um, quicker than other companies, although I, I have not researched it myself extensively. Um, but I do think that um, this particular story in NPR did create um, a bit of a discussion um, because I think it is laudatory. Um, and I would say that that position is not the uh, majority position that I've heard from communities that are actually <laughs> impacted by confinement agriculture. Right. <clears throat> Well, it's 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 difficult to know. As you say, it is exactly that. It's a band-aid. Uh it does nothing to address the the root problems uh of which there are many. I mean the I mean yes, the most visible uh problem with any kind of CAFO uh concentrated feeding operation of any type um is the manure. That's the one that has the biggest impact on the community, but there are a whole host of other problems with animal welfare and uh with uh labor issues especially. Um you know, <clears throat> I don't see CAFOs going away, so I would love to see more pressure, more regulations that would force um, companies like Smithfield to add these uh, biodigesters to all of the farmers that they contract with. I've never thought that it was right that a farmer should be the one who has to manage and mitigate these uh, problems, uh, given that they are only participating in a system that is being set up not for their profit, but for the profit of a much larger corporation. So have you have you heard of any other systems like this? I mean, I, I actually invested money in a company um, about 10 years ago that I interviewed on this show <laughs> that had like a closed loop sort of situation, but they've never made a dime. In fact, I've lost money so far. <laughs> I'm still waiting. I still have my fingers crossed that these guys are somehow going to pull it out and make me a millionaire. But I really don't know uh, in the existence of, of this particular model, I have not heard of any other particularly efficient method of mitigating um, manure uh, besides the biodigester, which as you pointed out, and which I forgot to point out, uh, is actually going to make money for Smithfield because they'll be trading it in for uh, you know uh, energy credits. Um, but what else, what other processes do you think would be, uh, have you heard about as you go around the country? You know, I have not heard um, many sort of broad scaled um, ideas about how to how to deal with this amount of manure. I mean, certainly large amounts of manure are used, as we talked about, for application onto crop fields. And that system, um, if done correctly, is sort of the backbone um, fertilization system for all of, you know, crop-based agriculture. So that's, you know, that is definitely one sustainable way that um, manure can be used. Although, as we know, the manure produced from these type of operations is 
there's such a high quantity of it that far exceeds the, the demand of the cropland surrounding the farm that that's where you end up with these right. um, overflows or situations where there's just far excess manure that more than anyone could use. Um, and so I, you know, I don't, I'm not aware of um, many systems beyond the biodigester. I'm sure there's many people thinking about this, but certainly in the communities that are most concerned with CAFOs that I speak to, um, I think that there's uh, the immediate concern, if it's possible, is just to avoid citing the CAFO in their community at all. Um, and that is uh, the, the preventative step that many communities are trying to take. Yeah. Well, they did end up calling a moratorium for a year in, uh, in um, Trade Lake. Um, so that they could examine the situation uh, more closely. Uh, I, I think that the situation has been examined uh, almost uh, ad nauseum by many other uh, places, and I, I have no doubt that there's loads of science and loads of reports uh, that will explain just why having a CAFO located anywhere near your town is a bad idea. But <clears throat> everybody seems to need to, you know, study that situation a little bit further. What kinds of regulations do you think would make the most sense for farming communities like Trade Lake uh, to manage the growth um, and local, uh, you know, influx of large-scale agricultural, like building on what Brad Pfaff was trying to do? What, what, do you, what would you think, um, as somebody who's studied up on this quite a bit, what, what kind of regulations would you like to see or would you... Could you imagine farming communities coming to? Sure. So definitely the moratorium is a tool that a lot of communities have been using um, to try to buy some time to figure out how to, if, if there is going to be a CAFO in the community, how to best cite it so that it has the least amount of environmental impact. Um, there's also been moratoriums proposed at the state level and at the national level. So the moratorium is definitely, um, is definitely a tool that, that folks are interested in. And I think, you know, one of the, the calls that I hear most strongly from almost every state that I've reported in is to have more control at the local level and more power in the hands of local authorities to be able to make decisive decisions about um, whether or not a CAFO can, can be located there and what types of setbacks, what types of other um, regulatory requirements those CAFOs will have to face. And unfortunately, that's um, that type of local control is something that has been degraded significantly over the years and has paved mm. the way in many states for um, for CAFO expansion to happen. In fact, I mentioned in this story that the state of Missouri just this past year um, unwound with it, with a state law all existing county health ordinances that implemented more stringent regulations on livestock farms than the state required. So that, those were cases where I think it was about 20 counties had gone through a process to to say in this county, you know, if you have a CAFO here, it has to meet a higher bar than it does, than the state would require as a default. And most states require very little from CAFOs. So um, for the county to, to write up its own requirements, you know, it takes an effort. And um, some of those um, ordinances had been in place for decades. Um, and wow. with one state law, they were sort of wiped out and, and the ability to write new ordinances was also eliminated. And so that's the type of bill that the, the, the agriculture industry supports in many cases, the state level and at the federal level to make it harder for small communities, for local communities and for counties to have control over their own water and air resources. So that's definitely an area that I think a lot of grassroots organizing is happening around and definitely mm -hmm. at every turn when those 
bills are introduced, there's a lot of uh, pushback, and then the community really tries to fight against it. Of course, the agriculture industry is much more powerful than many grassroots communities uh, could could even attempt to stand up against. So, um, mm. so that's that's the trend, unfortunately, that we're seeing. Though I do think that um, when it when it is there, when it is strong, local control really has the power to um, put the put just put the decision making power in the hands of the community, as opposed to um, you know the folks who will not be impacted by the KFO. Right, right. Well, that's that is so interesting. We'll have to have a show just about that topic. Um, Leah Douglas, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this is your moment to promote yourself shamelessly. Where can people learn more about Leah Douglas and her work? Sure. So you can uh, <laughs> follow you can follow me on Twitter. That's uh, usually the best place to find out about uh, my work. Is at Leah J Douglas, and uh, you can find the Fern Food and Environment Reporting Network at thefern.org or on Twitter as well. Absolutely. Great paper. Great reporting. Always a joy to talk to you, Leah. Thank you so, so much. Uh, Thank you to my sponsor and thanks, Matt, for engineering. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, folks. Thanks for listening. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.